the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Now then, boys, where are we going? To the top, Bry. Where's that? To the toppermost of the poppermost. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Toppermost of the Poppermost. We're already farther than Mark Lewison in terms of the Beatles story. I'm Ed Chan. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. So, we're into January of 1963. We're going to start off with Paul Anka. Uh, Not someone you might expect for us to be talking about. (laughs) Definitely not, but certainly had an impact on the charts at this point. And there are some, shall we say, interesting Beatles connections. He was one of the very first big influences on John and Paul's songwriting. To take a minute here to quote from Mr. Lewison, it was in the porch, vestibule in Paul's vocabulary, that John and Paul cracked the chords to Elvis's Blue Moon, one of his first and best Sun records. In a sudden moment of joy, they found it was the same as Paul Anka's recent hit, Diana, C, A minor, F, G, known to them from this point on as the Diana chords. You and I, we will be as free And indeed, as we found out from Get Back, they referred to, quote, the Diana chords several times. <laughs> I'm using a C. A minor. F. G. That chord progression is in quite a number of songs. You know, Martin can tell us a little more, but it does seem to be one that stumbles upon uh, new songwriters. Alan Cozen, in his book, The McCartney Legacy, talks about Linda writing her first songs because, well, legally, they were claiming Linda as a co-writer. So they said, Linda, you need to write some songs by yourself. Uh, Apparently, one of the first chord progressions she came up with was the Diana Chords. Well, I was saying myself to you the other day, Ed, that my first song that I ever wrote the music for, I didn't realise until till I thought about it that I'd basically written the same thing but transposed into G major instead. So I did the G major, the E minor. So it was the same, basically, progression but transposed into G instead of C major. But that's not the only time Paul Anker would cross the Beatles. He was at least partially responsible for 
bringing Nat Weiss, who would be the Beatles lawyer for many years, and Sid Bernstein. I was working in Paris at the time. I used to hang in Europe a lot from age uh, 17, 18. And, you know, we weren't in a media-driven society, as I said. So nobody knew what was going on anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm in Paris, and I see this new group called the Beatles. I'm in London, and I meet them, and we're talking. And I'd come home to my agents, Normie Weiss, at yep. General Artist. Norman Weiss. And I'd say, Normie, there's this group, and these Beatles, and they got hair, and they got this. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? I right. said, you've got to see these guys. They're unbelievable. Nobody listened. And uh, ultimately, uh, he got on a plane and went over and signed him wow. and brought him over in 64. This story really surprised me. I don't know how this flew under my radar, but I was not aware of it. Now, I will admit, though, some of it, I wonder. It's questionable. If, yeah. <laughs> hmm. I've heard his side of the story. I've heard Sid Bernstein's side of the story. And I'm wondering... Is there a combination? Let's just sort of go through it very yes. briefly. Uh, so Anka, you know, he was a Canadian. He had had uh, several hits in the 50s, most notably Diana, to take just a very, very brief diversion. Back before he was even signed to a label, Paul Anka managed to find his way into Chuck Berry's dressing room when Chuck Berry was traveling around Canada and the States on a tour. And so being this young kid... He picked up the guts to pick up the guitar and sort of play a rough version of Diana to Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry turned to him and said, kid, that's the worst song I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> pull, pull. Aww. Now, granted, this is a man who knew how to write good songs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, but I still, I love, you know, I love that story, even Me though too. it has no Beatles relevance. So, you know, by 62, Three by right about this time we're talking about here, Paul Anka was traveling through Europe, and uh, what he says is that he was in France, and then he found his way over to England, and he started to notice, gee, there's this thing going on. Right, and he thought that this was quite a uh, sensation, and so he contacted Nat Weiss. Paul Anka was with GAC. Mm -hmm. And Nat Weiss and Sid Bernstein at that time were agents within the GAC Corporation who worked with Anka, among other artists. So he made friends with the Beatles, and he, he tells some stories about meeting up with the Beatles, and he apparently became particularly close to Brian. So Brian gave him a press kit and gave him an early copy of Please Please Me, and Anka brought it back over to the States and played it for... Nat Weiss and Sid Bernstein, and that is how they then entered the story. Right. And that's when Sid Bernstein contacted Brian. Queenie. Yeah, he called the Epstein oh, household. Queenie first, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, called. Yeah, because Brian was living with his parents at the time. Yeah, talked to Queenie first, exactly, and said, you know, I want to book them, and the rest is history, as they say. And so I called Brian at his home, he was still living at home in Liverpool with his mother, Queenie. And I said, Mr. Epstein, I want to bring your group to America. I said, where? I wasn't prepared for that, but my favorite venue is in my own city, that's Carnegie Hall. I said, I'd like to bring them to Carnegie Hall. Now, I hadn't heard their music. I'd only read about them in the English newspapers. 
and all they wrote about was this new group, the Beatles. I just felt I belonged to something. I viewed an interview with Sid Bernstein where he was talking very positively about Brian Epstein. He obviously thought very highly of him, but uh, somehow didn't mention that Paul Lanka part. <laughs> yeah, um, Sid's version of the story is, oh, I went and picked up the London papers every day on my way to work at GAC. And I read from front cover to back cover, and I started noticing more stories about these Beatles guys. And so, yeah, okay, Sid. So, you know, there's enough room. We do know that in actuality, Anka and Epstein were friendly, if not friends. Uh, Among other reasons, we know that in 64, Brian went on the American game show, What's My Line? Now that was entertaining. The panelists included... First, the delightful star of stage and television, now starring on Broadway in Beekman Place, Miss Arlene Francis. And now, just returned from a very successful European tour, the singing, swinging Paul Anka. And now the syndicated columnist, our friend, yours, Miss Dorothy Kilgallen. Dorothy? Just back from the Middle West, where they simply adored him, as we do, Mr. Bennett Surf. Anka had to excuse himself because he knew who Mr. X was. Right. Yeah, exactly. He clearly <laughs> knew the answer right away. Mr. X, are you any type of booker or impresario? Yes. Uh, do you, did you book Paul Anka's tour? No. No, that's two down and eight to go, Mr. Sir. (laughs) (coughs) What, Mr. X, did you have (coughs) any association, whatever, with uh, a very successful group of young men called the Beatles? I quit. Uh... (laughs) Mr. Barry Epstein, who is uh, actually the... the, uh, Impresario uh, for the Beatles. Impresario, but more than that, the discoverer of the of the Beatles brought them the brought them first together. The creator, the creator the of them. It, it's an interesting story, which uh, actually I probably shouldn't tell because you you have a book coming out rather soon. I think that tells the story. Of, of, uh, Are there any moments, Mr. Epstein, when you re- when you feel a little sorry about the whole thing? <laughs> I don't think so, Bennett. As they might say here. I would think that Brian would very probably laugh all the way to the bank if he had any such any <laughs> moments like that. Which they're such darlings. They are so they are, sweet they're... and funny and cute. So there aren't any sorry moments now. Yeah. The, uh, but it's an interesting story. Actually, uh, I should, you, Mr. Uh, Epstein has got a book, A Cellar Full of Noise, which I think is a, a fine title for it. <coughs> I don't want you to think that is any more than just an expression of an interesting title. Uh, do we want to believe Anka? Do we want to believe uh, Sid? Regardless, they did eventually go over and get Brian to sign with GAC, and the first American tour, the February tour, did indeed happen, maybe because of Paul Anka, certainly in part because of Sid Bernstein. There's probably a bit of truth 
in, in both stories. And I encourage everybody, yeah, go on YouTube and, you know, you can see interviews with both of them. And there are a couple of interviews with Paul Anka that are titled, you know, Paul Anka brought the Beatles to America. Well, <laughs> I mean, it, it amounts yeah. to two or three pages uh, in Anka's biography. Yes. And he also makes some other rather exaggerated claims. He claims that he was responsible for, again, in part, getting introducing released on VJ. We know that that was not the case. No. He also claimed that he was, again, in part, responsible for the booking on The Sullivan Show. Again, uh, no. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry there, Paul Anka. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but, I mean, you know... I, Given what we know, there is at least probably a kernel of truth in there, and they both may be true. It may be that Anka came back, played the record for Sid Bernstein, and Bernstein had also been you know, reading the London papers. And it's like, oh, yeah, I heard about those kids. I'd also believe they came over to London after this, and then that's when they actually had the discussion with Brian. I'm not so sure about the business of him ringing Brian and getting his mum and that. We heard about that from a couple of people. I mean, you know, Brian's no longer with us. Queenie's no longer with us. But I would guess there certainly was a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, the way I understand it is that the contracts were all signed when the Beatles were in Paris in January of 64. So, I mean, you know, they had like tentatively booked the Coliseum and Carnegie Hall Mm -hmm. and maybe put down the money. They had already decided, yes, we're coming over to the States. Well, Despite Paul's best version of the story, we're not going to the States until we have a number one hit. Oh, yes. (laughs) That chestnut, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, that's why I say I think there probably is a happy medium between both versions. I agree. So, all right. The other thing we wanted to talk about right up front here, right at this time, the Beatles were going into the Helen Shapiro tour, and we've already talked about that a little bit. But in March of 63... The Beatles would go on the road with Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe, both of which were on their kind of on their last legs of their fame at this point. Uh, for a while, Tommy Rowe would actually come back. Uh, dizzy it, much later in the 60s. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. That's Tommy Rowe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just forgot but, about uh, that. Yeah. Uh, so, one of the things about that tour, apparently, they actually kind of were trying to ape. Buddy Holly's final tour by having the Hispanic Mexican American guy with the guy who kind of was like Buddy Holly. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, that was an interesting concept to mimic that, and it was an interesting tour to say the least. I mean, and and actually, in the beginning of the tour, from all accounts, you know, things went well. People got along. Chris Montez. And we've talked about him before, said he got along with the band, you know, just fine. And John Lennon's guitar, and they apparently had, like, long conversations about songwriting. Exactly. I mean, the guys were nice to him, and and as you said, yeah, I mean, John, uh, and and he had long conversations about that and play guitar. And and so at first, and, and of course, though, he and Tommy Rowe, you know, would were just shocked by the uh, reception the Beatles would get and, and would uh, experience a bit 
secondhand, of course, all the screaming teenagers and, and that sort of thing. I mean, they weren't screaming for them, of course. <laughs> but Well, and, and this was the first time that the Beatles would overtake the ostensible headliners of the show. I mean, the, the way it was set up, two houses, two sets in each house, Montez was supposed to close the first set, Tommy Rowe was supposed to close the second set. Well, pretty quickly there, I and mind you, Please Please Me had already reached number two or number one, depending on which chart you're looking at. The Beatles were to take over, not every night, but most of the nights. More often than not, they would close the first set, and they would just, you know, Montez and Rowe would go together to close out the second set. But sometimes they even closed out the whole show. Yep, definitely the changing of the guard was starting. It was apparent on this tour, that's for sure. And then before we get to the piece that most people know about, there was a period of about four dates where John Lennon was so ill, he could not perform. But the show must go on, so they went on as Paul, George, and Ringo. The original Threedles. Well, the, the same Threedles, but... Uh, yeah, the Threedles first version, yeah. Exactly, and so, and they apparently played their whole set, except that Paul picked up, you know, one of his more schmoozy numbers to make up for Twist and Shout. What, what did George do then that was extra to his usual? I read it, I don't remember. Yeah, I, don't I actually don't, don't think George actually played any additional songs. Okay. I think they really only swapped out one. George was doing much more harmony vocals. They were just sort of covering John's leads as best they could. It's sad that we don't have any tapes of those. I would have loved for one of those tapes to actually exist. but That's what I was thinking. I would have loved to have heard that that early on. So they got through that. John returned. And I guess John you know, kind of wasn't in the best mood. And as they were on their way to Liverpool, they stopped in a pub for lunch. And, well, John, it's amazing how... At this point, John comes off as a jerk more often than not. At least when he's drunk. (laughs) He was, uh, from all accounts we've heard, he was not a nice drunk. He was not one of those guys that got nicer when he was, as my mother says, overserved. And so, as I recall, Chris Montez was just sitting there at this gathering, and John Lennon just go, comes in and hey you so and so and yeah and poured a whole mug of beer over poor chris montez yep and uh chris wasn't happy at all it led to a fight it led exactly to a fist fight. i yeah. mean yeah like a knockdown drag out fight and i was sleeping and all of a sudden i hear a lot of rackets you know i'm like this and all of a sudden someone pours beer on my head and it was <laughs> It was John Lennon. I said, you son. I got up and and we got into it, you know. They broke us up in a bus. And, you know, and uh, that was my experience with John Lennon. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, you're not the only one who's going to sit here tonight who punched John, so. Oh, well, I, I know. I just, uh, it was just, it was, it was, it was just something happened, you know. It was not pretty, and that was the end of their friendship, for sure. And John was actually you know held it against him for the rest of the tour which is pretty astounding amongst other things in the fight paul was noted to have you know come to try and break it up and 
Tommy Rowe smacked him one and he hit his head on the cement is the way I heard the story. Ooh. Enough that he was probably a little bit concussed. Oh, jeez. Wow. Paul? And Paul, a very humble, beautiful person. He was, uh, he's the one that broke us up and then him and, and Tommy Rowan. And come on, guys. And we didn't talk to each other for a while, but Paul was always trying to make amends. I said, Paul, I don't want to talk, man. He just leave me alone. You guys do your thing. You know? But he, he's a true, not only a true genius, but a true person, beautiful person. Now, I think later on, Paul, ever the PR person, yep. tried to kind of smooth things over with Chris Montez, and you know, but uh, didn't work. <laughs> you know, Chris was like, nah, I'm not letting this go. Well, another thing we have, Rogue Best in his museum in Liverpool has a letter. John Lennon pours a bottle of beer over Chris Montez's head. Well, Chris took a slim view of this and went mad and took a punch at John. Paul tried to intervene, but in the scuffle that was going on, landed on his back and knocked his head on the pavement, nearly knocking himself out. Anyway, they managed to stop the punch. Then John started abusing Chris and... <laughs> as well as Tommy Rowe. So Tommy Rowe took a swing at John, Neil blocked the punch. There was mayhem going on. And the rest of that tour, after that instance, the Americans sat at the back of the bus and the Brits sat at the front of the bus and Neil, my dad, sat in the middle of the bus just refereeing, just keeping everyone at bay. And Neil was the one who kept the... English artists away from the ostensible stars of the show. Oh, wow. I didn't right. know that. My gosh. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they had, you know, six or seven additional dates, including Liverpool, and Neil was there to, to keep them apart. <laughs> Jeez. One of the things that kind of amused me, one of the opening acts was an act called The Viscounts, and they were kind of a band that did impressions. Okay. And who did they do impressions of? They did impressions of Helen Shapiro and Frank Ifield. <laughs> oh, the oh, Beatles' besties. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, Frank. You know Frank was going to re-enter the scene oh, somewhere. Yeah. Good old Frank. Hey, I found it funny that, uh, that on this bill you have musical impressionists. Who are they doing impressions of? Oh, you know, who had been on the top of the charts? Well, there you go. <laughs> All right, that was our look at Paul Anka, his relationship to the Beatles, and the Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe tour. Well, we're going to stay in the 60s. The FabFo have partnered with RPM Music School and Music Masters Collective to create an epic and educational experience called the Magical Mystery Camp. This unique event runs from Tuesday, June the 20th to Friday, June the 23rd, 2023, at Full Moon Resort, just a short drive from Woodstock in New York. The place is a wonderful 100 acres of pure nature set right in the heart of the Catskill Mountains and offers a range of lodging from glamping Glamping, I like that word. Yeah. To country in-style rooms to luxury cottages along with top-notch catering. Well, and I'll tell you, if that weren't enough, I mean, listen to this lineup. The Fab Foe will be joined by musical guest John Sebastian, Joan Osborne, and Marshall Crenshaw, as well as some highly respected... Beatles authors and educators, they plan to have a ton of fun. 
There will be interactive workshops, teaching clinics, and, of course, evening concerts for everyone in attendance. There will also be acoustic and electric jam rooms for you to join in on, with backline equipment provided, open mics, and plenty of time for jamming together with other camps and with the Fab Foe. The bass player in the Fab Foe is Will E., the former bass player from the David Letterman Band. He is one of the few people who, it can be said, played with each of the four solo Beatles. He, he was on uh, Cooking with John and Ringo. Uh, he played with George at George's final paid concert, the Natural Law Party show. And wow. then uh, he played with Paul at the concert for New York. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. This event promises to be an immersive experience for Fab Faux fans, Beatles fans, and all lovers of music. Please mark your calendars. This is a premiere camp, and we want to see you there. Check it all out at MagicalMysteryCamp.com, where you can find all updates, information, and ticketing options. Come celebrate the music of the Beatles with a whole community of folks who really loves this stuff. And we have been asked to mention that some of the higher-end packages are already starting to sell out. So even though it's January and the box office has just opened, you better get there quickly if you want to get some of the better placement. Absolutely. Do not delay. You can send the kids off to camp and then go off to your own camp for a couple days. There you go. Perfect. All right. On to the charts. So in January, Please Please Me had just been released and was starting his climb. I was a little bit surprised to see that Love Me Do was still there. You know, I thought it kind of dropped off by the end of December. Yep, it was still lingering there. I, I was surprised, too. I didn't think it would be on for that length of time, either. So, at number 23, one of my favorites, the Joe Loss Orchestra. Why is that? Joe Loss, the leader of the Joe Loss Orchestra, was one Ross McManus. Yes. And the Joe Loss Orchestra appeared with the Beatles on the Royal Variety Show that year. But Ross McManus, his son, would be better known to us as Elvis Costello. That's right. these sort of coincidences and connections. It's another one of these, you can't make this stuff up. This is the kind of music that was hitting the charts before the Beatles came along. You know, this is just classic dance band music of the time. Although I thought this one, this is must be Madison. It's a little bit more peppy. Exactly. And even, you know, little electric guitar was in there, you know, so it sounds a little more modern than you'd expect. So they're trying to make it sound 60s, slightly more modern. But this dance band music is still lingering here on the charts. And Elvis, in his bio, tells stories about his dad and his dad actually going and getting the Beatles autographs for him and how overjoyed he was. Needless to say, the idea that my dad would be sharing the bill with the Beatles was a lot more exciting than the fact that he was to perform for royalty. That show is now mostly remembered because John Lennon introduced Twist and Shout by saying, For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. Would the people in the cheaper seats clap your hands? And the rest of you, if you'll just rattle your jewellery. It was this quip that grabbed all the headlines the next day. 
There was no mention that my dad had sung If I Had a Hammer for the Queen Mother, who was very fond of work songs, never having had a job of her own. The other side note to that, Joe Loss, not the orchestra, not Ross, but Joe Loss was actually the first to take a picture, more or less a duplicate of what the Beatles would do on the Please Please Me cover. Standing in the EMI stairwell at more or less the same number of floors up. And I guess they must have taken it the same way with the photographer down on the ground pointing himself and pointing his camera upward. Yep, and taken a year earlier as well, October 61. There is some question as to where that stairwell resides. Well, the entire stairwell does not exist anymore. The building that it was attached to was destroyed. Manchester Square. But the railing was taken to EMI's headquarters, and of course, EMI EMI's headquarters now belong to somebody else. So it is believed that somewhere around 2010, Paul McCartney picked up the railing to that stairwell. Mm. So interesting. There are no public photos to be taken with that stairwell anymore. Wow. Bango's another one of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so continuing down the British chart for the first week of January, at number 40 was Little Eva's Keep Your Hands Off My Baby, which we've talked about. That's right, and we know this song very well. This is uh, Little Eva's take on it. And I think we're going to see Little Eva again on the charts in just a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how they really did just sort of keep the singles coming. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as we said... So Love Me Do is out, just as Love Me Do is going down the charts. There's Please Please Me. It's all ready to go. Yeah, it's just astounding how Goffin and King could just crank out these songs. And many of them, like Keep Your Hands Off My Baby, were so good. I mean, Well, and Chains was still in the charts. Exactly. Chains was still in the charts. And so you really understand why the Beatles covered so many Goffin and King songs. First of all, they were so great. But secondly, there were so many of them. They were on the charts. I mean, they, they were hearing them all the time. And then at number 43 was the James Bond theme by the John Barry Orchestra. Familiar to us for a number of reasons. I mean, Bond and the Beatles, we'll do a thing on Bond and the Beatles here somewhere along the way, I'm sure. But most notably, as Martin did not know, this would go on and be at the front of help in the States. That's right. about that i didn't know about that until ed told me about it no (laughs) really no oh wow there's your connection there you Uh, go at number 49 was the lonely bull by the tijuana brass herb albert was part of it but it was not yet herb albert and the tijuana brass
and of course, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, well, this, as you said, at this point, just the Tijuana Brass Band. I mean, they were so huge in the 60s that believe it or not, in 1966, their famous, probably best known album, Whipped Cream and Other Delights, outsold the Beatles. It was huge. So, I mean, you know, when you think about it, believe it or not, that they were that big at that point, that that year they actually outsold the Beatles. That was the battle because you had Rubber Soul and then you had Yesterday and Today and then you had Herb Albert. Mm -hmm, They were just, you know, fighting each other for the top of the album charts. Exactly. It's really amazing. And also, this is not exactly having to do with the Beatles, but this song Albert recorded in his garage he was experimenting with the sound of an overdubbed trumpet. And then the single and album recordings of the song were recorded also by members of the Wrecking Crew. And of course, we all know the Wrecking Crew. Yep, there you go. And then, of course, Fool on the Hill. I mean, that's the other reason we know Herb Albert. Of course. Uh, these days uh, is, is their cover of that. At number 50 was uh, Venus in Blue Jeans by Mark Winter. Just a, really a footnote to the Beatles story. They appeared on the Night of 100 Stars with the Beatles, and one of the Gabor sisters. We see those photos all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very interesting photo, indeed. Then at number 48, we have A Shot of Rhythm and Blues by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. I mean, I love the Arthur Alexander version. As we all know and our listeners now know, we're big Arthur Alexander fans here. But I like this version, too, the Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. There's just something kind of raw about it. You could absolutely picture this being performed at the cavern. Or Germany. Or Germany, yes. You know, that's a Star Club kind of version of this Yeah, I mean, you could absolutely picture this. And much as I love the Arthur Alexander version, I mean, this just has some grit to it. Really like this version. Yeah, And then out of that band, we had Mick Green. Someone who would come into the story much later on. He uh, played on Paul's Russian album sessions. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and he also played on the Run Devil Run sessions and did the promotional tour with Paul as well. He would play the Cavern. That's like the only live show he did out of that tour. I mean, he did a bunch of TV stuff and he did that show for PETA. But did he actually do any other shows on that tour? I don't remember. I thought he was part of the group for the for every performance that they did, whether it was 
for television. Uh, well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think yeah. they did that many live performances for for the Run Devil Run promotion. It was predominantly the Cavern, which was the millennial show, and then they did a, a PETA thing, and they might have done one or two others. I don't remember off the top of my head, and I didn't look it up. No, I can't remember either. No. Oh, and the Beatles also covered another song by uh, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, "Shaking All Over." Great version. I wish they'd have released that officially on one of the albums. Agreed. Quivers down the backbone. Then at number 50 was Chains, which we've already spoken of. We move on to the 17th of January. At number 27 and number 32, we have two songs by Marty Robbins, Devil Woman and Ruby Ann. Yeah, and we're going to see some country on the charts. We're going to be seeing it in this episode and in our next episode in in February. And Marty Robbins, as I'm sure many of you know, was a giant in country music. You know, had a long career and and had a beautiful voice and, and apparently. Paul was a big Marty Robbins fan. And, you know, when you listen to Marty sing, I can see why Paul was drawn to him because he really had a very melodic voice that had a great range. And the two songs that are on the charts at this time, uh, 27 is Devil Woman. To Ruby Ann. Ruby Ann took the hand of this poor, poor man in true love, a funny thing. different 27 devil woman that had a little bit of a spanish flavor to it kind of a mexican flavor i should say similar to his best known song el El paso Paso. Uh, and then ruby ann actually has a little bit more of a rock flavor to it has a little boogie woogie piano in it so kind of interesting i mean he obviously was country but he would experiment you know, with putting other genres in, uh, in his music, introducing other elements to country as well. I really like the guitar solo in there. And then and the backing vocals are very sort of Jordan Ayres-esque. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he was successful for almost 40 years. I mean, he was a major, major star. And Beatles covered one of his songs, Singing the Blues. In the Get Back sessions. Yes. Although that's actually more or less a complete version of the song. Yeah. Exactly, and you know, pretty good. This is roll number four four nine four four nine. The Buddhist stars no longer shine. The dream Straight. is gone. Three, three two three, continuing. There's nothing left. 
to do but cry over you, cry over you, yeah. I never felt more like crying all night, cause everything's wrong and nothing ain't right without you. You got me singing the blues, yeah. Take it, Billy. Without you, you got me singing the blues. I see this mic's gone off. You got me singing the blues. This is no surprise. The Beatles certainly did listen to country. You know, we all know that. And, you know, we see why. I mean, because country was on the charts at the time. Well, I mean, I grew up- Liverpool was referred to as the Nashville of... Well, the North. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yep. And singing the blues, Paul would do a great version of in the Unplugged set for MTV as well. Yeah, you're right. Did a great version. And then on the other side... Marty Robbins would be one of the multitudes that covered yesterday. I believe in yesterday suddenly. I'm not half the man I used to be. There is a shadow hanging over me. Yesterday came suddenly to look that up he'd, he'd probably do a great version terrific vocalist at number 37 on the week of the 17th it's up to you by rick ricky nelson familiar to us at that point for ozzy and harriet but later on ricky nelson and why did they keep calling him ricky i guess the rick thing never stuck huh I read somewhere that he dropped the Ricky when he turned 21, but I don't know if it really ever stuck. People who grew up with that show, he was Ricky. (laughs) Also, one of the main stars in the Western film Rio Bravo as well, with John Wayne and Dean Martin. Oh, wow. Okay. But the relationship we would know, I mean, he did actually become friends with Paul, and he was at least friendly with John Lennon. The song that we remember him for most is Garden Party, which mentions both John and George in it. Yes, indeed. In my opinion, I hope I'm not setting any Ricky Nelson fans out there, I think Garden Party was his best song. That's a great, great song. A lot of great lyrics in there. And yes, he makes reference to George and John in there and some Kind of sly references, too. Yoko and the Walrus, that's not exactly... Uh, that's hidden. not. The George Harrison one is the sly reference. Yeah, yeah he, he talks about George's good friend and future Wilbury Dillon. Exactly. Yeah, this song that's on the charts, it's up to you. It's up, it's up to you, because I've done everything. To me, it sounds a lot like one of his other big hits, Traveling Man. I don't think it's one of his more distinctive songs, but definitely sounds a bit like that. Poor Little Fool is the other one that oh, we all yes, remember. This is a song which Lynn and I used to listen to. Uh, well, I was in Liverpool. She was in New York. We both listened to it in the 50s. It's by Ricky Nelson. It goes like this. 
at number 41, a song which we've mentioned before, Little Town Flirt from Del Shannon. Chris Montez, who we talked about at the top of the show, Some Kind of Fun, was it yeah. number 42? Otherwise known as Let's Dance Part 3000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there it is at number 45, it's Please Please Me. There we go, on its way up. Okay, then we move on to uh, the next week, the 24th of January. There's Frank again, Frank oh, Ifield look. with Wayward Wind. <laughs> look who it is. Good old Frank. At number 32, there's a, a song from Acker Bilk, the Taste of Honey, his cover of that. Yep. Again, we, we've already spoken of Acker. Uh, at number 34, a song called Charmaine by The Bachelors, which we mentioned because there was a rumor which went around for a long time that it was the bachelors that kept the Beatles out of the top of the British charts. No, that did not happen. So sorry to disappoint any bachelors fans out there <laughs> at number 38, the buddy Holly less crickets with my little girl. We're very glad to welcome one of the most popular groups of the day, the crickets. This was interesting to hear because, you know, you really get a sense of just what an incredible lyricist Buddy Holly was. I mean, not that you needed further confirmation, but the crickets are obviously great musicians. And you hear that in this track, you know, the drumming, it sounds straight out of a typical Buddy Holly song. I mean, the musicianship's great. The lyrics... <laughs> Not so yeah. much. Yeah, this would be Sonny Curtis and Jerry Allison. They just don't compare. So that same year, they would also uh, release a cover of Don't Ever Change. That would be one of the Beatles' favorites. That's right. They do a great cover of it. Shortly, they would release albums of California surf music and an album including some Beatles covers. She loved you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loved you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loved you. So they jumped on the bandwagon pretty quickly. <laughs> you could have quite a collection if you just collected every record that people have recorded cover versions of Beatles songs on. Oh, absolutely. You'd have a huge collection. And then down at the bottom side of, these, of the charts for this week, Loop to Loop by Frankie Vaughn, a song that would be covered on the Pussycats album. Interesting. Well, wow. he was a favorite of Ringo's, wasn't he, I think? Frankie yeah. This was a big hit. A lot of people covered the song, in fact. Oh, it's fun. It's nothing special. It's, it is a nice, neat little song, though. Yeah. On to the 31st of January at number 40, What Now by Adam Faith. What now, now that you've gone and left me? What now, now that I'm sad and lonely? Nothing much to say about this song, but Adam Faith was actually one of George Martin's discoveries. Was he one of the first pop acts then on the Parlophone label? The first. The first, right. Okay. Oh, wow. Wow. The two that George Martin signed early on were Adam Faith and the Vipers. The Vipers who would record No Other Baby, which showed up on Run Devil Run. 
Indeed. Yep, yep. With Mick Green of Johnny Kid and the Pirates on guitar again. And it's interesting because what now actually does have a skiffle feel when you listen to it. It really does. Uh, Adam Faith seems to be channeling Buddy Holly a bit. Just a bit, yeah. Yeah, just a bit with his Buddy Holly you know, vocal, that tick, uh-oh-oh, that kind of hiccup. So in addition to that, in 1974, Adam Faith had a comeback album, which included Paul McCartney on four of the tracks. Indeed. Played Synthesizer on the tracks Change, Never Say Goodbye, and Goodbye. (laughs) I'm saying goodbye on this album. And then on a song called Star Song, he and Linda sang backup vocals. You want to be a star? I'm sure Alan Cozen will tell us all we need to know about the making of this album. Yes. <laughs> when he gets to 1974. He's getting close at the end of this book. So, all right, before we move on to the American charts, Martin, why don't you tell us a little bit about Pods Like Us? Pods Like Us is a show where I speak with different podcasters and people who, who make material that's available online for streaming and such. And we talk about their shows, how they were inspired by the shows, what the shows are all about, and about how they record the shows. And Kid, of course, is everywhere, most notably with Talk More Talk every other Monday night. Yes, it's a show that's dedicated to the solo years. All right, so uh, we move on to the Billboard charts for January of 1963. We start with the fifth at number 32 was Dion Warwick with Don't Make Me Over. Yeah, with the great Burt Bacharach, Hal David team, which would become so dominant in the 60s. This was one of their earlier hits, and this song particularly just shows you how their songs were incredibly hard to sing. And I think, you know, Dionne Warwick just uh, was one of the few who could really, really do it. And Don't Make Me Over is just a, a perfect example of that. I mean, she really has to you know, get up into her higher range in, in this track. Classic song. Absolute classic. And in an echo of what we spoke of with Helen Shapiro, she has a story. I told them I was working at the Savoy Hotel to come on over and hang out with me, but the Mater D would not allow them, them being the Beatles, in the room. He said they were not properly dressed. I went a little bit on the ballistic side. I said, well, guess what? These are my friends. If they're not allowed in, I'm not going on. They got front row seats after that. So it goes to show you, everybody was looking at them a little peculiarly, but hey, they were the Beatles. (laughs) All right. Go, Dion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the other thing is just after Let It Be, Ed Sullivan did a tribute to the Beatles show. I believe it's where the Two of Us video was first played. And 
he did something a little bit strange. He uh, he put together Paul's solo version of Yesterday from 65 with two other artists, one of them being Dionne Warwick. Wow. Wow. You know, one of the most beautiful and best-known Beatles songs, Yesterday, was first performed in America by Paul McCartney. And joining him tonight, here is Diane Warwick and Peggy Lee. Three artists singing at the same time. It doesn't quite work, but, you know, it's nice enough. Very cool. At number 44, we have Chris Montez's Some Kind of Fun again. Yep, John's friend. (laughs) (laughs) And then at number 53, we have uh, Paul and Paula with Hey Paula. Not much of a Beatles reference, but that was a song that Paul dug. Was there a song in response called Hey Paul? (laughs) (laughs) There's a photo of them. Even though it is the 63 Beatles, it's the For Me to You Beatles. They look so miles beyond Paul and Paula. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking at that picture now that you showed me, Ed. That's Arthur Askey with them. It links to Golden Slumbers, doesn't it? But that's later, later, later. Golden Slumbers. I know it was an old, uh, an old song, isn't it? It's an old. Uh, well, when did you write it? Well, I mean, it's not my lyrics. It's an old. It's like it's ancient. Uh, what? Really? It's sort of yeah. It's like an old uh, lullaby. Arthur yeah, Askey like, wrote the, the trad arranged. The yeah, yeah. At number sixty was Brenda Lee with "All Alone Am I." Now Brenda Lee did play the Star Club when the Beatles were there. Interesting when she was there. She was taken aback by a group of rowdy teenagers from Liverpool who were serving as her opening act. Uh, And after watching them, she approached them and asked, where do you get those songs? And John replied, oh, we write them. And she and John actually became good friends. She said, I hung out with John. He was extremely intelligent, very acerbic with his jokes, just a gentle person. When I found out that they later said they were fans of my music, I was just floored. So this certainly wasn't the November, and it certainly wasn't the December residency. So it would have had to have been when they were there in April and May. Absolutely. What a voice she had. And crossed all different genres. Pop, country, you name it. Even did rockabilly in her earliest years. I think her nickname was uh, Little Miss Dynamite. And just from an early age, from like 11, 12... I mean, she had that big voice. and uh, uh, Another another one like Helen Shapiro. Exactly. There's a photo of her on the Star Club stage, and she's just belting it out. Yep, typical for her. Yeah, what a talent. I could see why John would have appreciated that. No use in kissing other ladies Or I'd be thinking just of your all alone am I ever sent you goodbye All alone with just the beat of my heart For that time, she's also a female singer that had a really, a lot of grit in her voice. It wasn't like, you know, just smooth like that. There was a lot of grit in her voice, which was sort of made a different to a lot of the other singers. Absolutely. She held nothing back. And when I taught my class on uh, the Roots of Rock and Roll, where I talked about Rockabilly and one of her earliest singles, which she recorded when she was like 12, 
was a rockabilly number. And it's incredible. I mean, she had that, as you said, Martin, that grit, you know, at 12. <laughs> yeah, it's, she's not too far removed from like Tammy Wynette. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a phenomenal singer. So, yeah, I can see John particularly being a fan of hers. All right, so on to the week of the 12th. At number 25, we had uh, Nat King Cole with Dear Lonely Hearts. Nat King Cole, one of Paul's favorites. And I have to say, uh, just a very brief editorializing here, this was unfortunately his really commercial period you know he's doing lazy hazy crazy days of summer rambling rose and dear lonely heart this was when it was like you know really overproduced lots and lots of strings just very very commercial this was not like the real jazz stuff he was doing not that other things he did weren't commercial but this was not on the level of unforgettable anything like that i mean this was or even the christmas song exactly i mean this was very very commercial so this was not the best period for him i'm I'm a big fan of his please help me find a love of my own Just my little editorial. There you go. <laughs> uh, at number 27, we had Dion with Love Came to Me. Dion would also become a friend of John Lennon's. Uh, he has a story about going for the rubber soul jacket in line at the same time as John Lennon. They were <laughs> apparently both in the store shopping at the same time in New York City, and both of them reached for the jacket at the same time. And I guess John got it. <laughs> so John was buying a copy of his own album. There you go. <laughs> At least according to Dion, and this is Dion, not Dion in the Belmonts. So he too had moved on a little bit. Although this song is interesting, uh, Love Came to Me. It's very 50s doo-wop. It's, you know, it seems a little out of place on these charts. I mean, it's a real throwback kind of song. It's almost like the last cry of that sound. It just seems very out of place in 63. <laughs> very much a transition period you can right. have joe loss in the charts and you can have dion doing you know 50s-esque material yep. and at, at number 79 you we have etta james still yeah would it make any difference to you what a singer what a singer this isn't one of her best it's not at last that's for sure but she sings this with such conviction 
she was an absolutely emotional singer. You get this from At Last, of course, but even with a song that's not as good quality, you just feel the pain in her voice. And also, this song particularly really shows the fine line between blues and country. I mean, you really hear it in this with the chord changes, the piano, guitar, and strings. I mean, it really just straddles that fine line. If I Brian Ray would be a member of Etta James's band for a number of years throughout the 90s. Yes, indeed. I forgot about that. Yeah. All right. And then, you know, towards the bottom, we have a great Marvin Gaye song, one which Paul would pull out and cover when he played the Apollo a number of years back, Hitchhike by the fabulous Marvin Gaye. talking (laughs) exactly hitchhike this was i think his second hit we talked about stubborn kind of fellow i think in the previous episode paul is a big fan of this song
one which we have professionally recorded version of is uh, he did uh, the Apollo show for Sirius XM, and he actually did hitchhike about three times mm-hmm. because the very first time he did it, the power went out, but somehow the recording kept going. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he had to do it twice. And then he, then he did it a second time. Then he decided he didn't like the second version quite so much. So he did it a third time. Oh, geez. I forgot he did it three times. But he also played it uh, elsewhere. He did a live cover of the song during his 2011 performance at Comerica Park in Detroit. Makes sense. <laughs> he also played it at the 100 Club. Yes, that's right. I remember that gig. He did like a couple shows at the O2. So this was part of his set for that little brief run of shows. Yep. Uh, so clearly a big fan of the song and why not because it's i mean it is a great song and martha reeves and the vandellas are singing backup on the song as they did on many uh motown songs early ones particularly what can you say this is marvin Gaye at his best um easily yep classic funk brothers backing with of course, the great James Jamerson on bass that, um, you know, Paul was, it was a huge influence on Paul's playing. doesn't get any better than this. Well, you had a lot of back and forth, Marvin Gaye and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, didn't they? Isn't it Marvin Gaye that's playing drums on Dancing in the Streets? Yes. Yes, yeah. it, he did play drums on, yeah, that one and, and uh, other early Motown songs. Absolutely. Yeah. Which Mick and Bowie would cover. Uh, I don't think the Beatles ever did a version of it. I don't even think there, there's a get back version of Dancing in the Streets. Don't think so. So. Mm-hmm. All right. So on to the week of the 19th. We've got the Paul Anka tune again. Love makes the world go round. Sorry, Paul Anka fans. I thought this was kind of corny. <laughs> and, and then at number 69, we have uh, Ruby Baby by Dion, another Dion song. That's the one, that album in particular is the one that John Lennon supposedly really, really dug. Well, and this song, I mean, Ruby Baby is a classic. Lieber and Stoller, you know, one of the yeah. great songwriting uh, duos, originally recorded by the Drifters, who they worked with quite a bit. But I love Dion's version, too. And of course, Donald Fagan did a great version of this on The Nightfly, one of my all-time favorite albums. But I love Dion's version, too. Just has such a great rhythm. Just a classic. I love this song. The action gets underway with the Golden Great from Dion. Hear me talking, this girl don't love me, but I love it just the same. What I say, oh, And then the week of the 26th, at number 63, we've got Sam Cooke, Send Me Some Lovin'. We're going to talk a little bit more about next time, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not one of his best. What can you say? Sam Cooke had such an incredible voice. This has a kind of a country feel to it, which is uh, interesting. And it was actually originally recorded, I believe, by uh, Little Richard. We'll talk a little bit more about that next time. Mm-hmm. And then at number 100, just because I like the fact that there's a song by this title on the charts, Meditation by Charlie Bird. Yeah, and it's a beautiful song, too. I mean, you know, incredible classical guitarist. And we're going to talk about this a lot next time. Our first entry here about Bossa Nova. We're going to see a 
lot of bossa nova in our next episode. Again, more of things change. Exactly. All right. So that does it for January of 63. We'll be back soon with February of 63. And of course, you know, please, please me is in the chart. So we're going to start with the please, please me story. Talk to y'all next time. See you next time. Bye. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that. They must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror, as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.